You know, one of the things I love about Christmas time are the traditions that we get to share with one another and that maybe you even have as a family. And I, I would ask you, what kind of traditions do you have as a family? Maybe you have a tradition of uh, eating certain types of foods or listening to certain types of music or watching certain movies. You know, a really sweet tradition in Christie's family is her grandparents every year would give each grandchild an, an ornament. And that ornament would correspond with their name and it would be something of their interest. And every Christmas they would get a new ornament. And it's a tradition that has been passed down and so that now her parents do that with our children, with their grandchildren. And they, every Christmas, buy them a new ornament as a tradition that they pass along. Something that we do in our family as a tradition every Christmas is throughout the month of December, we read a, a Bible story that corresponds with Christmas. And it starts with creation and it goes all the way up through the birth narrative and how all of Scripture is pointing to Jesus as the hero. And then each day of December, there is an ornament that corresponds with the day and we hang it on a Christmas tree. And it's just a sweet time to plant the gospel into the hearts of our children and to celebrate the birth of Christ together as a faith family. You know, it's amazing to me how traditions and storytelling in particular is so impactful for passing the faith on from generation to generation. In fact, this is God's design of multi-generational faithfulness is which parents and grandparents pass the faith on to children and grandchildren by telling the stories of God, of who he is, what he has done, and what he's going to do. In fact, the psalm writer Asaph says in Psalm 78, he says, um, we will tell the coming generations the praiseworthy deeds of our God so that children who have yet to have been born will put their hope in God. Well, it's through storytelling that we hear of the faith that is passed on from generation to generation. But did you know that it is through faithful storytelling from God's people to a Gentile people, 500 years before Jesus was born, that led to the arrival of the wise men coming to Bethlehem? Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Luke, excuse me, Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. I love Matthew's gospel. It's called the bridge gospel because Matthew bridges the Old Testament into the New Testament. Matthew uses more Old Testament references than Mark, Luke, and John combined. His primary purpose of writing this gospel account is to reach Jews for Christ. He's using the Old Testament and pointing forward to how Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. That indeed Christ is the one that the people of God, the Israelites, have been looking for for generation after generation. We see in Matthew chapter 1 the genealogy of Jesus, of how the, the lineage of God and how he is faithful from generation to generation, starting all the way back with Abraham, going all the way up to the arrival of Jesus, as God is faithful. We see the story of the arrival of Christ and the birth of Christ and the story of how he was born. And then we get to chapter 2 where these wise men arrive on the scene who come to Bethlehem. And that is where we pick up in Matthew chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. The scripture says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, 
wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Christ would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way. And there it was, the star that they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling on their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route." The heart of God is for all people of the world to know, love, and obey Jesus. God uses many different means to draw people to himself, including a star in the sky. I want you to notice in the text how God calls the wise men to himself and what that means for us. I want you to see first in the text, God's inclusion of the Gentiles. God's inclusion of the Gentiles. Matthew tells us that these wise men from the east have arrived in Jerusalem. Now that makes sense because they would come to Jerusalem to find the birth of a king. It's the capital city. So wouldn't the king be born there? So when they arrive, they begin asking everyone, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Where is this one who is the king and has been promised about? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. The question is, where did these men from the east come from? Well, let's remember the people of God were under God's discipline for their disobedience 500 years earlier. If you can remember, Faith Family, our study through the book of Habakkuk, where God's people were walking in disobedience and they were not trusting or or following him. And so God brought judgment on the southern kingdom of Judah through the nation of Babylon. They were taken into captivity for 70 years. Part of his discipline of his people is that they went to Babylon. Well, what we see what God commands his people to do in Jeremiah 29, that while they are in captivity, they are to work for the good of the city. They are to labor for the good of those around them. And what we're going to see is that these are men who have this understanding that there will be a future king rising up in Israel. That there is a star that is going to rise up in the, over, in the, over in the west in Israel. These people who are coming from Babylon, which is probably Persia at the time, which has been dominated by the Greeks and the Romans, they are following the star because they have heard the good news about the arrival of a king. Now let's think through this for a minute. 
It's been about 500 years since Daniel all the way to Bethlehem. So for 500 years, this pagan nation, there have been people who have been passing on the stories that they have heard from the Israelites who were in captivity years before. If you want to know the power of storytelling, the power of passing on the faith to the next generation, here are a people who know nothing of God other than what they have heard from the Israelites who were in captivity 500 years earlier. But for 500 years, they've passed on the faith. They've talked about what has been told to them about a future king rising up in Israel. You see, this is the heart of God where he has a love for the nations. God is in hot pursuit of all nations, of all peoples coming to know him. And Lord willing, we're going to unpack this more in a few weeks when we look at the Great Commission, that it's not just a New Testament um, principle that we see, but it's all throughout Scripture. In Psalm 96.3, the psalmist says, Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. It has always been the heart of God to see people all over planet Earth come to a knowledge of him, to rest and trust in this king. Well, when the people of God were scattered in captivity amongst the nations, they were declaring God's glory. They were telling the nations about a future king, a future Messiah who will come and rescue God's people. And these 500 years have gone by, and the people in Babylon, which is now Persia, been dominated by the Greeks and the Romans, these people have passed along from generation to generation what these Jews taught them when they were slaves. So now here are these wise men, these scientists, probably astrologers who are watching the sky and they see something that they've never seen before. They see something in the sky that is grabbing hold of their attention, that is so captivating that they're like, we've got to be a part of this. There's something happening here. This star on the horizon is in the direction of Israel. And they recalled Numbers 24, 17, that a star will come from Jacob. A scepter will arise from Israel. And they are so captivated by what has been passed down for these five centuries regarding this newborn king that they leave the comfort of home, they leave the safety of their lives, and they follow this star to go and find this king. They followed the evidence of what had been revealed by God's people about their future king. You see, nature was shining a light upon Jesus. And these men would go to meet the king. You see, they followed general revelation to go and meet special revelation. Kenneth, what are you talking about? General revelation is God's revelation of his character through creation. That God reveals himself generally to the entire world. We see it in science. We see it in the stars. We see it in the human body. We see it in sunrises. We see it in kitty cats. We see it in everything around us. General revelation is what God reveals through creation. 
David says it like this in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day by day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. We see in Romans 1 that God reveals himself to believers and unbelievers that creation is pointing to a creator. That general revelation is God's revelation to believers and and unbelievers that there is a God. God is screaming through the planets and the cosmos and through the grass and through things seen and unseen that there is a creator. But believing that there is a God is still not sufficient to save. We see in James chapter 2 verse 9 that even the demons believe that there is a God and shudder. But creation is declaring that there is a God and creation is enough to reveal that there is a creator and yet it's not sufficient to save. It's not enough just to believe that there is a God. There must be more. You see, general revelation is enough to reveal that there is a creator, but it's insufficient to rescue from sin. But this is why we need special revelation. Special revelation is God's revelation of his son through his word. It is the specific revelation of Christ that God is not only the creator of things seen and unseen, but indeed he has a name. We know who he is. We know what he is like. And he invites us into a personal relationship through this king, through this son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, eternal life is found by knowing and submitting our lives to special revelation, namely Jesus. You see, what we see happening in the text is in Matthew 2.2, general revelation The star is pointing these wise men to special revelation, the sun. God is using creation to literally shine a light on the creator, the Lord Jesus Christ. But don't miss what Matthew is showing us here. Gentiles who are coming to Christ. It's not Jews who are traveling a long distance to come to Jesus. It's Gentiles. You see, God is calling. He is wooing. He is inviting the nations to himself. God has a heart for all nations. And he invites people from all over the world to come to his son. Isaiah pointed forward to a future day in which he said, Nations will come to your light and kings to your shining brightness. You see, Matthew 2 is a snapshot of an even greater reality that's coming in one day when the glory of God will illuminate the new kingdom and all nations and their kings will walk by the glory of his light. And this is an even greater reality for us who belong to Christ. There's coming a day in which you and I are going to rally around the throne, Revelation 5 and Revelation 7, with people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, people from all over the world who have submitted their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what's coming for those who believe the gospel. If you don't know Christ today, the beauty is that you can be included in on this, that if today you turn from your sin and you trust in Christ by faith, he will receive you. 
That this baby king who was laid in a manger grew up and lived a perfect sinless life for you because he knew that you couldn't. And he died the death that you and I deserved. You see, it was my sin and your sin that nailed Jesus to the cross and his blood was shed so that through him you can be brought back into a right relationship with God through him. And the gospel is that Christ died on on the cross for you and for your sin, but he didn't stay dead. For on the third day, he comes back to life and he defeats death. So anybody and everybody amongst all the nations of the world who turn from sin and trust in him by faith are received by God. This is the gospel that we rally around. And what we see are these Gentile wise men, these Gentile kings who are coming from possibly 800 miles away to come and bow before this newborn king. This is the Savior. And they humble themselves and they get low before him. But we also see in the text is we see Herod's deception of the wise men. You see, King Herod was an enigma. This is a man who was an architectural and engineering genius. You go back in history and you study his work. It's unbelievable the structures that he made, the lavish palaces, the aqueducts. When Christy and I were over in Israel, we got a chance to visit several of these palaces that he had constructed. And it was just remarkable, the engineering and the insight in which he had. He had 11 different palaces, all of them within one day's uh, travel of one another, so that if he ever got on Rome's bad side, he could travel from one palace to another and stay ahead of them to get to his ultimate fortress at Masada, a fortress where they couldn't get to him. Ultimately, he never visited that palace while he was still alive. But this was a man who was an architectural genius. And yet, at the same time, he was a horrible human being. He killed one of his wives and three of his children because he thought they were conspiring against him. This is a man who was a lunatic. He was crazy. He was paranoid and would kill family members who he thought were out to get him. The Romans had a saying, it's better to be Herod's pig than to be Herod's son. He was hated by the Jews. He was continually taxing them, taking more and more of their money. He was siding with Rome, even though he converted to Judaism to try and be politically neutral. The Jews despised him. But he was such a terrible human being that on, according to Josephus, a first century historian, he writes that Herod knew that when he died, no one would weep for him. He was so hated. And so what Herod did was when his, his health started failing him, he went through all of Judah and got the most prominent and respected men. And he put them in a hippodrome and quarantined them there. And he ordered that on the day of his death, they were to be slaughtered so that people would weep on the day that he died. That's this guy in verse 4. This is the Herod who is out to get this future king who may rival against him. So he assembles these Jewish scribes and chief priests and asks them where this Christ is supposed to be born. Well, the religious leaders, they quote Micah 5.2. It's Bethlehem. You're small among the clans of Judah, but one will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. 
His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. You see, these Jewish leaders, they were Old Testament scholars. They knew, the, they knew their, their Torah front and back. And they knew that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. Well, with his fears confirmed, Herod concocts a devious plan to murder this rival king born in Bethlehem. He meets with these wise men in secret and he presents his scheme. He sends them to Bethlehem as friendly spies who would, verse 8, search carefully for the child and then report back to him so that he too could go and worship him. But Herod's plan was not to worship this newborn king, but to execute him. You see, here's a man whose plan was to kill any rival who would rise up against his kingly rule. You see, when people fear that their throne is threatened, they attack the weak. When earthly kings fear that their, or, their authority is in danger, they begin to threaten those who can't fight back. You see, dictators don't like their leadership being questioned. And as the wise men show up in Jerusalem asking where this newborn king of the Jews is, the people get concerned. Not only because of Herod, but because of what's Romans, Rome's response going to be. How are they going to respond to this king who's born right here? But instead of Jerusalem receiving the news of the newborn king's birth with joy, they're disturbed, verse 3. And ultimately, they would be proven right to be disturbed. You see, when people fear that their authority and their autonomy is being threatened, it's the innocent who suffer. We see this all the way back in the book of Exodus in Egypt as Pharaoh ordered the execution of every Hebrew baby boy. Pharaoh was threatened by those who may overthrow him as king. But we see this throughout modern history as well. We see it in the life of Stalin and Hitler and Mao and Planned Parenthood. That whenever someone is in a position of authority and they are in danger of losing that, they attack the weak. They attack the vulnerable. Well, Herod realizes what is coming and so he will ultimately respond if you go on to read in the text later on in chapter 2, in verse 16, Herod's fear is realized and it turns to rage when he realizes that he's been outwitted by these wise men. That they go back home a different route. They don't come back and report to him about what they have seen. And he gets so angry that it turns into a massacre in Bethlehem of every baby boy that's two years and younger. And yet God is still sovereign. And God is still good. And he is working out his plan that even through the evil plans of the wicked, he has a greater purpose he is accomplishing. You see, Jesus would ultimately experience the world's worst evil at the cross. He is the one who would experience the ultimate injustice through his death. And one day, Jesus is going to destroy all evil. That's the good news that we rally around as believers. Now, Herod will seek to fulfill himself by killing those young children, but he's merely a pawn in God's hand. But the prophet Jeremiah said that this would happen. You see it in verse 18, that this death of these toddlers in Bethlehem would lead to great weeping. But yet, God is still pursuing the nations. God is still going after people who are far from him, which we see leads up to number three, the Magi's celebration over finding 
the king. After meeting with Herod, the wise men, they start the six-mile trip south from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. And as they're traveling, they see the star, and it appears, and it leads them right to the front doorstep of where Mary, Joseph, and Jesus are staying. And the wise men, they celebrate, verse 10, they're overwhelmed with joy. Now, you can imagine, it's been a long several months 800 miles of travel. And yet this star was the perfect GPS. Brings them to their destination. And they go inside the house and they see Jesus and Mary and they fall at his feet and they worship him. They give him gifts like gold and frankincense and myrrh. Gifts fit for a king. Gold, which is for royalty. Frankincense, it's an incense to fragrance used in temple worship. And myrrh, it's a spice used to prepare a body for death. You see, Jesus is the royal king, the gold, who offered up his life as an act of worship for the glory of God. The frankincense. And he gave his life as a sacrifice through his death on the cross, the myrrh. You see, even in the gifts, we see the gospel. That God is pointing forward to a cross that this young child would go through when he becomes a man. God is pursuing after the nations and even through these gifts, he is pointing to the ultimate purpose of this son king and it looks like a blood-stained cross. And these men, they come to the king, they fall on their knees and they worship him and they give him expensive gifts. And that is a picture of, of what we are called to do. In fact, it's your impact point, and it's this. Fall on your knees and offer Christ all of your life. You see, it's through faithful storytelling to future generations that we're preparing people for the day in which they will bow their knee before King Jesus. You see, there's coming a day in which every knee will bow. And every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord. And either you choose to bow now or you will be compelled to bow later. And the invitation to you today is today, humble yourself. Bow before King Jesus and offer him your life. Get low before the King. Bow your knee. You see, there's coming a day in which atheists and even Satan himself will bow before the king. And through gritted teeth, Satan will declare, Jesus is Lord. I implore you, bow your heart and bow your knee before this king now. You see, storytelling, traditions that we pass on, is to prepare people for the day when they meet Christ face to face. I encourage you now, humble yourself 
get low before the king, bow your knee, and offer your life. 